puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man But until you've thoroughly tested every last close trust of you Find the more you think you know, the less you really do Again, higher side chatters doing what we do from the Sunshine State. I'm Greg Carlwood. And ever since the Roswell event in 1947, and maybe even before, UFO enthusiasts have been begging the state for some sort of acknowledgement that they know at least something about physics-defying flying saucers, as well as the long history of bedroom visitations and backroad abductions from non-human entities happening all over this island Earth. And even though it seems like the state, the military, and the official media of the big machine are finally willing to talk about these things, you can be pretty sure that what they have to say won't be the truth, because when is it ever? Some say the hidden agenda is to prop up military budgets against a never-ending invisible enemy, and others say it's just a handy-dandy wag-the-dog distraction used anytime the system needs to divert attention from some other hot topic. But the Twitter trends don't lie, people, and it's been decades since we had an era of interest in such things as potent as our own. Although, when you look at the overlap between emerging technologies in the occult, or compare the ritual experiences of those who dabble in the dark arts to the entities experienced in high strangeness scenarios, things start to look a little less sci-fi and a little more spiritual, and it seems like we might be in the middle of a story that started a long time ago. Well, today's guest L.A. Marzulli would certainly agree, as he's written over a dozen books covering the Nephilim and Fallen Angels narrative while folding in UFOs and their occupants in under that context. He also has a five-part UFO disclosure documentary series on his website, a lengthy and popular YouTube series called On the Trail of the Nephilim, and even co-produced an 11-episode series called The Watchers. All of which dive deep into these very things and the idea that we've been deceived and trained to see these entities as aliens rather than the demons they really are. So let's dive into it. The fallen angel author, Nephilim skull scavenger, and great deception detective, L.A. <laughs> Marzulli. Welcome to the higher side. Hey, great to be here. It's a great introduction. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it is great to have you. I don't think anyone has written as much about the Nephilim giants and the Genesis 6 narrative and the spiritual perspective on UFOs as you have. And this does happen to be a pretty timely interview because just last week we had that new report from Leslie Keen and Ralph Blumenthal come out regarding the military whistleblower David Grush, who confirmed the government has materials of non-human origin, including intact crafts, which is not new news to people who look into this stuff, except that they're talking about it now, but you consider this part of a grand UFO deception. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, there, and I just want to state something here. You'll notice the people who get to the front of the line, it's Nick Pope. He's completely tied into the intelligence agency. It's Luis Elizondo and Chris Mellon, once again, tied into a government agency, intelligence agency. It's all part of the same, as it were, club. Jeremy Corbell, a filmmaker, 
George Knapp. And now those guys aren't tied in, but they're always there. They're presented as the experts, where people like me who hold to a biblical worldview are basically marginalized, sidelined, and really not even asked for their opinion. So this is a managed agenda. They, the powers that be, are rolling this out. I watched a film by Stephen Greer last night. It's his latest one. And Greer assists or states in the film that these are not demons. Well, how does he know that? He doesn't know that. He's just making basically a straw man argument based on what? What can you give us that would steer us away from that? And my counter argument to him would be, Stephen, is it okay to abduct a five-year-old boy and implant him? And we show that and we talk about that, not only in our Watcher series, but the man's name is Emil. And in our number four ongoing UFO film series, we sat down with Emil, who tells us point blank that he was, he was taken numerous times since childhood by them, the greys, as it were. And they are utterly demonic. Al Matthews, the same thing, taken at a very early age, not implanted as far as we know. But from both of these men, sperm was taken. They're subjected to horrible, horrifying, so-called medical experiments. So it makes Stephen Greer, with all due respect, and I would love to talk to him, but it makes Greer's argument that these are not demons just collapse of its own weight, fall of its own weight, because once again, circling back. And when I'm at New Age conferences, I'll ask the audience this. I'll ask them, how many of you think it's okay to abduct and implant a five-year-old boy? Anybody? Never, not once in all the conferences I've ever done, has one hand even gone up. doesn't exist. Everybody knows instinctively that this is really wrong on so many different levels, way wrong. So for Greer to stand up and say something like this, in my opinion, is incredibly disingenuous. And then, of course, at the very end of the film, he talks about CE5, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, where they meditate and they call down these entities. Well, meditation is nothing more than Eastern mysticism. Having been involved in that, having my third eye open by a guru, having lived in an ashram for three years, I know of what I speak. It's not just something I read in a book. I mean, I was there. I lived it for three years. And I can tell you this, that Eastern meditation opens a person up to the lower astral, i.e. the second heaven, as the Bible declares. So Stephen Greer, at the very end of the film, this is what he's promulgating. He's promulgating nothing new, Eastern mysticism, open yourselves up, invite these entities in. Well, no. (laughs) As a Bible-believing, born-again, spirit-filled Christian, this is the last thing people want to do. Because, first of all, you're opening yourself up to an entity, a non-physical entity, who will speak to you, who will communicate with you. And, you know, with all due respect to Greer, I mean, he's a believer in his own narrative. There's no doubt about it. He believes strongly in what he is promulgating. But my my retort is, what if he's wrong? What if these extra-dimensional, interdimensional entities are not something benevolent, but are, in fact, the age-old entities? And this is what Jacques Vallée and J. Allen Hynek thought. Of course, their thinking now is sidelined, and no one talks about what they say. Not very, I won't say no one, but very few people go back and look at what Valet stated early on. Messengers of Deception is a perfect example. Why does he call his tome, his book, Messengers of Deception? J. Allen Hynek stated that these entities appear more like 
the demons of old than they do extraterrestrials. And that's because, in my opinion, that is exactly what we're looking at. And all of this ties into what I call the coming great deception. Mm. <laughs> well, that is a hell of a setup. Great points you're making. I mean, it is kind of a catch-22 because I don't trust anything the military really comes out and says, but yet who has access other than the military and these kind of people? So I pay attention to what they say, but always take it with a grain of salt. And I've heard you say that the pilots of these crafts, they're not aliens. They're multidimensional beings that have been with us for a long time. It does seem more like that's the proper context to me as well. I've heard you mention that gray aliens are really biological suits that a demon can wear. And I guess I would ask you, just because so many people have so many different opinions, if we wanted to further make the case against this great deception that is uh, pretty overwhelming when it comes to ufology, that is the paradigm that is pushed most often. What do you see in studying the phenomenon and abductions and the general field of ufology that brings you to a more spiritual context rather than a sci-fi one? Just to use the Greer example, you know, you ask, how does he know? Well, how do you know? Well, let me explain something. I'm going to give you a scenario here. Now you tell me what this is. So a man is imprisoned in a jail cell, and all of a sudden an entity appears. It doesn't come through the it just appears in the room. How does that work? The man is released from his handcuffs. The prison door opens by itself. This entity and the man walk out into the corridor. All the guards are switched off. They're all slumped over and asleep. They go to the entrance of the prison, and the door opens by itself. They go to the prison gate. Once again, the gate opens by itself. They walk a little down the road, and this entity just disappears, leaving the man free. So what am I looking at? What do you think that was, what I just described? I mean, it's hard to say. It sounds like something that could be spiritual, something that has a lot of control over the situation, a miracle for the guy in jail. True. But it's very similar to what we read about in the abduction phenomenon today. What I just read was a sort of my own little take on Peter's jailbreak, which is what we find in the book of Acts in the biblical prophetic narrative. These entities that manifest can manipulate space, time, matter, and energy, both the good guys and the bad guys. So what I just gave you that little vignette, that little story from the Bible, is Peter's jailbreak. But the entity, the good angel that appears to Peter, is doing exactly the same thing that the bad guys do. When the bad guys show up, they too manipulate space, time, matter, and energy. People are levitated off their bed. We know that that's physically impossible from our physics, at least as far as we know. They go through the window, through the wall, or through the ceiling. Once again, from our standpoint, that is physically impossible to do, and yet it happens. Abductee after abductee after abductee, all of them essentially, that I've ever talked to, state exactly the same thing. I go up to the window, the windows close, and I go through the window. How is it possible? They take me up to the ceiling, and I go through the ceiling. How is it possible? I'm hovering and levitating next to the wall, wondering what's going to happen next. And before I can even think about anything, I'm through the wall in a beam of light and being carried up into the belly of the ship. So in my opinion, there's a parallel between what we read about 
in the biblical prophetic narrative and what we read about in the abducted abductee phenomena, the UFO phenomena, which goes across you know all cultures, all countries. It's pretty much everywhere, all over the globe, even as I speak. But what's interesting here, and what we have to keep in mind, is that these entities have a nefarious agenda. Once again, going back to Emil, the five-year-old boy, where he's taken against his will. His parents have no say in this thing. And he is experimented on. He is implanted. We took that implant out many years ago. And we were the only team of Christians ever to do that, as far as I know. And that was the late Richard Shaw and myself. And Rick and I, and late Dr. Roger Lear, both of these guys have passed on. Dr. Roger Lear, the alien in the scalpel, is no longer with us. He died several years before Rick passed away. So it's not lost on me that these guys are no longer here. But we took the implant out of Emil. And in that operating theater, we experienced what those in the UFO community would call high strangeness. What I mean by that was we knew from the X-ray, from the CAT scan, from the stud finder, from all these different, a barrage of tests that we had conducted with Dr. Roger. And then when we took him in to get the ultrasound, that was with Dr. Matriciani, who basically took that ultrasound wand and within two minutes found the implant very easily, very readily, and said, we'll see you again in two weeks. So the day of the operation comes and we're there. There are three film crews, including Jeremy Corbell, who was supposed to give us credit in the film and never did, from what I understand. Mm. Not a good thing. But Rick gave him our footage, and he created Patient 17 with our footage, which, you know, that's unethical. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I talked to him about that film. I didn't realize that. You can hear case. my voice in the film. Huh. You can hear my voice in the film. Dicey, dicey. Corbell was there, and he was filming when we were filming. And after, in post-production, Rick gave him the use of our film as long as he would give us, you know, a shout out, which, of course, he never did. So isn't it interesting how Corbell's film goes right up on Netflix, but we were the one that paid for the operation to the tune of $5,000 or whatever it was. We paid for it, not Corbell or anybody else. We paid for it, Rick and I, Richard Shaw and myself. So, you know, I mean, I have a case here that, that our work was stolen from us, and of course it was. But of course, Jeremy's film goes right up on Netflix where we can't get on Netflix. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Why is that? Yes. So th there is a prejudice throughout social media, throughout all these different platforms. There's no doubt about it. And if you toe the line, you can say certain things, but you can't say other certain things. So there is no more freedom of speech as we know it. You can only say certain things. And if you say things that the powers that be don't like, you get a strike or two strike or you're deplatformed. To give you an example, I'm deplatformed from Vimeo. Hmm. Man. I'm deplatformed from Vimeo, and I will never go on there again, obviously. I'm deplatformed for life. So why is that? Because they looked at my work called a conspiratorial. Well, there are many people who hold to the same paradigm I do. So you've got some 20-year-old kid, you know, with all inked up and woke behind his computer, and he looks at my stuff, and he goes, well, we can't have this Marzulli guy on. 
So they take me off and they hold $14,000 of mine. They hold $14,000 of earnings. I had to lawyer up, pay the lawyer, and then they agreed to pay the money that they owed me. This, my friend, is how the game is played, and it's absolutely wrong. And the American people have a right to understand what is going on. The fact that we're getting one side of the story and we never hear the biblical side of the story, except for shows like yours and mine and others. But even then, once again, I'll, I'll speak of Prophecy Watchers. They were doing a conference, and Vimeo immediately deplatformed them. Why? Because they were espousing the biblical prophetic narrative. And apparently, that's a big no-no on certain platforms. You can, you can talk about anything you want. You can talk about Baphomet and you know anything else. But boy, you talk about the Christian worldview. You, you mentioned the J word, Jesus, and you're deplatformed. That, my <laughs> friends, is called discrimination. That is real racism. That is what we're seeing in modernity right now. It has no place in America. So in my opinion, we live in a quasi-fascist state, which is only getting worse as the days continue. But coming back on track, we took the implant out. And when we were there, again, we found the implant initially within two minutes. So we're there with three film crews, including Corbell, and Dr. Roger Lear is assisting Dr. Matriciana in the operation. Rick and I are looking at each other. There's nurses and some administrators. We have a very large HD monitor in the other room where a group of about 10 to 15 people are watching the proceedings. And this thing goes on for about an hour and 20 minutes. And at this point, Dr. Matriciana still can't find the implant. And he's going over this little strip of flesh, which is about eight inches long and maybe four inches wide, right below the right leg, right below the right knee of Emil. And he looks at Dr. Roger and he goes, maybe we should get another implant. And Roger goes, no, we know where it is. We found it. We know where it is. So at this point, I get a tap on the shoulder from the spirit of a living God telling me, you need to take authority over this and you need to do it now. And so I pray. I'm in a room full of people who don't hold the same paradigm I do, who don't believe like I do, and that's fine. But as a Christian, I took authority over that room, and I said, I'm going to pray, guys, and I'm going to do it now. And my prayer was very short and very simple. It was just this, Father, if there are entities which are cloaking this device, I pray that you would break their power and do it soon. Well, within two minutes, the implant came right on the screen. Everybody in the room was, whoa, what's that? And Dr. Matriciana was taken aback because he had been working, trying to find the implant for an hour and 20 minutes and couldn't find it. All of a sudden, one prayer changed everything in that room. Two days later, when we were in SEAL lab, it's the last time I saw Dr. Roger Lear alive. I said, Roger, I hope you realize what happened in that operating theory. And he looked at me, his eyes got real big and said, LA, I now believe that there's a supernatural component to the abduction phenomena, and I'm going to tell Whitley Strieber about it. So we had changed Roger's paradigm. He saw it firsthand. He saw it firsthand, mm -hmm. where something dramatic happened and changed the overall atmosphere of that room. Right. That's interesting. I mean, the power of belief is certainly a force that we know has uh, pretty extreme effects when you really truly believe something. If you believe you would be healed, obviously, if you take a pill that's just sugar and you think it's a medicine, they call it the placebo effect, but it's the power of belief. So yes, I definitely am 
on that page that belief is a, a powerful thing. And let me ask you this, because I know that you anchor your research in the biblical references in the Genesis 6 perspective, but I've also heard you say that many ancient cultures have similar stories about sky beings mating with human women or spirits and things that come from outside of the atmosphere inside our little earth bubble. Well, one example would be a clip that you show in one of the films of a Native American recounting a similar story that hits all the high notes from Mm -hmm. their cultural record. Mm -hmm. So it's great that we have multiple sources. The story does seem to have merit, but clearly the Bible isn't unique in this regard. And maybe we don't need to be so Christian-centric about it to stay within a spiritual paradigm. What do you think? Well, I, you know, people can believe what they want to believe. The reason why I focus on the biblical narrative is because it tells us exactly, I call the Bible, first of all, the guidebook of a supernatural, mm. because that's really what it is. It's the guidebook of a supernatural. So you're talking about Robert Mirabal and a film on YouTube, a clip on YouTube called Stiltwalker. And if the folks have not seen that, check it out. So when I first saw it, I was taken aback by what I was hearing. Because Robert Mirabal states, they say a long time ago, those who fell from the sky saw the daughters of man and took wives of them. And he goes on from there. Basically, he's recounting the Genesis 6 story. Well, I've also talked to Chief Joseph Riverwind about this, and it's in the native oral tradition. It's there in many of the tribes. They call them the star gods. That's what they call them. But we see the same, almost identical story of what happens in the days of Noah. And the reason why it's, you say, Christian-centric, because we're the only people who tell you exactly what's going to happen. And this, of course, is Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 sets up what's been going on this planet for thousands and thousands of years, regardless of what people may or may not believe. That is the truth and the story. You can counter that with all the arguments you want. But Genesis 3.15 is the dragon has just lured our progenitors, Adam and Eve, God's first creation, were made in the image and likeness of God, has just lured them into his kingdom. And the pre-incarnate Jesus is there in that garden, and he says something which sets up the rest of the biblical prophetic narrative, and that is this. He looks at the dragon and says, your seed, your offspring, will be at war, at enmity between the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. Your seed, your offspring, will be at war, at enmity, with the offspring, the seed of the woman. The one coming from the woman, called the Proto-Evangelium, the Messiah, will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. That's the entire history of the world, is like right there. That's everything. Whether a person believes it or not makes no difference to me. That was written thousands and thousands of years ago, and it's been carried out from Genesis 6 with Noah's flood. And by the way, pretty much every culture on the planet has a flood story. How is that possible? How is it possible that the Chumash Indians out here in California, Southern California, the Santa Monica Mountains where I live, how come they have a flood story? How is it that every culture, almost every culture on the planet talks about a deluge? talks about the earth being covered, talks about certain people escaping in a boat. Where does that come from? Is that just mythos, or is it in fact echoing 
the biblical prophetic narrative, which is what we see. So people will counter that and they'll talk about Gilgamesh and all this other stuff. But I would posit and push back to them that the book of Enoch is actually far older than Gilgamesh and what we read in the Sumerian text. Enoch precedes everything, in my opinion. And Enoch is one of the oldest tomes that we have. And when we read the book of Enoch and we go to chapter 6, which coincidentally is the same chapter in the Guidebook of the Supernatural, i.e. the Bible, which talks about this incursion of angelic entities, the fallen ones. Why are they there? Why do they come? Because they want to stop what the prophecy that Jesus gave in Genesis 3.15. They want to stop the advent, the coming of the Proto-Evangelium, the one who was going to crush the dragon's head. So what do they try to do? They try to contaminate the genome. And they almost do that, except for eight people. Except for the eight people, everything else is destroyed. Because we know from the book of Enoch also that these entities, these fallen angelic entities, these messengers, these watcher beings, are called watchers. When they came down on Mount Hermon, they created an oath. And that tablet, that stele, is actually found today in one of the museums in England. Hmm. And that stele states on the record that we are those who created this oath on Mount Hermon. The fallen angel, Samyaza, states that I fear that ye all will agree not to do this thing, and I alone will bear the penalty of this great price, of this great sin. So Samyaza states that, and then the 200 watcher entities, they all swear by mutual imprecation that they're going to do this thing, knowing full well the penalty that they're going to take on themselves when they begin to commingle the seed which is exactly what Genesis 3.15 tells us. And they go down, they take the women of the earth, they commingle the seed, no doubt about it, and they create a hybrid race known as the Nephilim. Mm-hmm. I'm not making this up. <laughs> it's all right there that's thousands and thousands of years old. And if that's true, do we see remnants of the Nephilim? And in fact, we do. All over the planet, we see the reference, the remains of what I call Nephilim architecture, fallen angel technology. And the reason why I'm so Christian-centric, if I can use your expression, is when Jesus dies on the cross and he says, it is finished. Remember, Jesus is the Messiah. That's prophesied way back in Genesis 3.15. He is the Proto-Evangelium. He is the seed of the woman. And this is like a three-hour conversation, but it's the entire Bible is wrapped up in the seed war. The entire biblical narrative is wrapped up in the seed war. And unless a person understands Genesis 3.15 and the seed war, they have no idea of what the biblical narrative is about. Sorry, they just don't. They have <laughs> no idea of what it's about. Because Jesus warns us it'll be like the days of Noah when he returns. Out of the entire Tanakh, the entire Old Testament, which was written and intact because the Septuagint tells us that that was all written before Jesus. That thing was intact. New Testament's not written yet. Why is it that Jesus points back of the days of Noah when he returns? And that's exactly what we're seeing in modernity. We're seeing, once again, the commingling of the seed, the offspring of the watchers and women of earth creating a hybrid. They are, in my opinion, modern-day Nephilim, and they are, according to Dr. David Jacobs, walking amongst us. But here's the kicker. When Jesus dies, according to Peter, where does he go? He goes to the lower parts of the earth, Tartarus. Why does he go there? And it says he proclaims 
it's a proclamation to the fallen watchers that are there. No jailbreak. You're not getting out. You're not getting out. That's the first place he goes. And we have to understand why does he go there? Because these angels who cohabited with men who commingled their seed, they're locked up. And that's the penalty of the great sin that Samyaza talks about in the book of Enoch. That's the penalty. They know that they're going to get locked up, but they've been promised that they're going to get out, that the dragon's going to spring him. He's going to win. It's going to be okay. Trust me. But it doesn't work out that way. And that's why Jesus goes down to the lower parts of the earth and preaches. It's a declaration, a proclamation to the angels, to the watchers that are chained up. And don't ask me how that works, but they're there. They're there. And (laughs) they've been there since before the flood. Yes. And fair enough. Yeah, I I would not argue that the Bible has some really interesting stuff in it that seems to be impressive that it was written so long ago. I just kind of put the Bible in a basket with other ancient texts that also have pieces of the story or they rhyme in some ways. Like you mentioned, the flood story, it's in a lot of ancient texts, so it probably has some merit. But I definitely want to try to focus on the beans rather than the Bible. And obviously your expertise is where they overlap. But because of your Christian perspective, I figured the best part about this David Grush interview to ask you about would be this supposed involvement from the Vatican. Grush made this claim that in 1933, Mussolini's forces in Italy were seeing a lot of UFOs in the sky and even recovered one. And then the Vatican helped cover this up and even informed the U.S. And apparently we eventually took possession of it. But the headline here is that the Vatican has been aware of non-human intelligence as far back as 1933. You would think they would have been aware of non-human intelligence from the beginning because it's a religion and they talk about spirits. So it really shouldn't be a surprise. But can you add anything that you might know about the Vatican's knowledge or involvement or role in this whole saga? Well, the powers that be know exactly who it is that they're dealing with. I'm not talking about your average congressman or whoever sits in the White House, because that's not what's running the show. This is a secret program, which is not part of our government. These are not elected officials. They are not part of what we know as Congress or the different branches of the government. They're completely outside of all this. And they have run roughshod over the information literally for decades, since Roswell, since before Roswell. So yeah, the Vatican is up to its eyeballs in it. They know, in my opinion, exactly what happened during 1917 and the Fatima apparitions. That was a UFO event. My two films that we created on the Fatima apparitions, and I want to thank some of the people who made that possible, but definitely Francisco Correra, who is the head of Exopolitics Portugal. Francisco was our producer in Portugal, and he was the one that was able to line up this incredible headline of experts, uh, Joaquim Fernandez. I'm sorry, that's not his name. I blew it there. But, but Joaquim was instrumental in just telling us what happened. We actually talked to a professor of semiotics who was able to look at the 12 photographs that Joshua Benolio took way back in 1917 in October. And there's a problem with several of them. There is a disc-like object directly over the apparition site. So I'm not making this stuff up. (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm I'm not. Right. And it's really interesting. (sighs) 
that all this is coming out, finally. So the Vatican has been up to its eyeballs in many of what happened at Fatima. And of course, they say, well, it's what it really is, is this was Mary of the Bible. But was it Mary of the Bible? And we're saying, no, it wasn't. In fact, I'm, I'm looking on its celestial secrets. And I was right. Uh, Joaquin Fernandez and Fina de Armada. We interviewed Fina's daughter. Fina, Fina died a couple of years before we got there. I think she passed in 14. We were there in 17, 2017. So we talked to Fina de Armada's daughter, which was just incredible. But we also talked and had a wonderful interview with Joaquin Fernandez. And he and Fina wrote several books together about the hidden history of Fatima. And all this is taken from a 1917 handwritten records by Father Figuera. And of course, it's dressed up in a way that the people can understand it. It's Mary of the Bible, but that's not what the kids saw. And the idea of the consecration to Russia, which, by the way, happened last year with the whole Ukraine war, Russian thing. So they dedicate Russia's heart or Russia to the Sacred Heart of Mary. Well, as a Christian, I take umbrage with that because this is all a, a Catholic construct. People can believe what they want to believe. And I'm not going to argue it with people, but I don't believe that Mary of the Bible appeared to those three kids so long ago in Fatima. So the Vatican has been up to its eyeballs in this stuff. There's no doubt about it. And they manage the agenda. And the reason for this is it hails back in some ways to Orson Welles' radio drama. He said this is a drama, but people thought it was real. War of the Worlds. And Orson Welles is doing this drama, and people were like freaked out, completely freaked out. Well, the old guard with the crash of Roswell, they got it right in the first newspaper that they put out, which was Army Recovers Flying Disc. 24 hours later, they published another story. Excitement not justified, says General Ramey. So we were out at Roswell. We were filming at Roswell. We also went up to the Jesse Marcel Jr. Library up in Montana and interviewed several people up there. Dr. Richard O'Connor, who was sort of the overseer of the library. We also interviewed Jesse Marcel Jr.'s widow, Linda Marcel, also his daughter, Denise. All this is in the film. Plus, we interviewed Chuck Zukowski and several other people in our number seven, which is now just starting in post-production. And we also have a never-before-seen interview with Jesse Marcel Jr., possibly the last interview he gave before he passed away. Hmm. So Jesse Marcel Jr.'s father was the intelligence officer of the 509th Bombing Group. To think that he would mistake a weather balloon for the material that he gathered in the field is absolutely preposterous, patently absurd as it were. It's just nonsense. And part of what we're doing in our film is to clear the name of Jesse Marcel Sr. Because he was a patsy. He was a fall guy. There was wreckage out in that field. We actually filmed in the debris site where the thing came down. I was with several people in our little film crew, and we spent most of the day there in the actual debris field. And we'll be giving more updates on that when we get close to releasing the film, but I think people will be blown away by what we actually discovered 
in the debris field. So all this was covered up. The old guard is dead. The old guard has all died off. General Ramey would be like 120 years old. He's long gone. The people that put the kibosh on what really happened at Roswell are no longer in power. They're no longer there. So there's this openness that we have now, which started in 2017, but it is a managed agenda. And as I said earlier, Leslie Keene, Nick Pope, Jeremy Corbell, George Knapp, many of these people, Commander David Fravor, Nick Pope, you know, they have either ties to the military industrial complex, and they're all of them are painting this in a fear, basically fear mongering. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in our airspace or doing this stuff. All of these guys are in lockstep with each other. But if they're demons, then we should kind of be afraid. Well, we should be. But they don't <laughs> say that they're demons. Right, right. They're right. saying that they're an extraterrestrial threat. And this is how they're couching it. And this all sets up the idea that there's going to be some sort of a false flag, false alien invasion, which may or may not be the case. I've heard about this for years, Project Bluebeam and all this other stuff. On the other hand, on the other hand, the late David Flynn and I had several discussions about this before his untimely passing. Mm. And we discussed this, that we believe that there was going to be a nuclear event somewhere on the planet. Now, we are linked up in ways that are unprecedented in all of history. Completely linked up. And I'm talking, of course, about the satellite that the satellites that are overhead linking us up with the internet. So the last time we saw the grid lit up was with COVID. Before that, it was the Fukushima tidal wave and the incident that happened with the tidal wave and the Fukushima reactor and the whole deal. That was the last time before COVID where the grid lit up. The powers that be can light the grid up. And what that means is that all news media, all attention is focused on what they want to show what they want the people of the world to focus on. And of course, it was COVID-19 several years ago, which in my opinion was, again, a managed agenda, but I digress. I agree. So the bottom line is, if you have a nuclear event on this planet anywhere, it's going to create the greatest climate of fear that we've ever experienced together, collectively. And the grid will be lit up, and that's when they show up. And what's alarming about all this is that what we are seeing now, which by the way is absolutely unprecedented, is the saber rattling over in Ukraine, over in Russia, talking about the use of tactical nukes. I mean, that is unprecedented. We haven't heard this type of rhetoric since the Cold War with the Russians, and now it's here. We also know that these entities are obsessed with our nuclear capabilities. And some people like Stephen Greer will say, well, you see, they're looking at this because they come from a galaxy far, far away, and they're afraid that with this type of weapons, we're a threat to them. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it would be this. And before I get there, I got to give you a proof text. When Jesus shows up in the man of the tombs, he's possessed by legion. He's possessed by numerous demonic entities. Legion, they are many within this guy. And it says in the text that Jesus commands them to leave, and they beg him, don't send us to the abyss. It's not our time yet. 
How do they know that? It's one of those little nuggets in Scripture. And look, I've been a Christian for 43 years. And when I call the Bible the guidebook of the supernatural, that's what it is. And if people out there listening have never read it, but they think they know it, they don't know it. It's not what you think it is. Trust me, it's not. And you get these little nuggets in there. And one of those nuggets is from the demons who are in the sky. Hey, don't throw us into the abyss because it's not our time yet. Stop right there. How do these entities know it's not their time yet? How does the angel, the good guy who shows up to Daniel, tells Daniel that, Daniel, seal up the words in this book, seal up the prophecies in this book until the time of the end. And then he says, this is what the time of the end will look like. Men and women will run to and fro over the face of the earth, and knowledge will increase. Well, if you retract knowledge over the last 2,000 years, from actually 2,500 years ago when that prophecy is written, it's flatlined. Nothing changes until Gutenberg with the printing press. And that's when we get our first blip into the modern era. Because now for the first time in recorded history, you don't have a bunch of smelly monks in a scriptorium writing word for word and copying the text. You can print it in a book. Thank you, Mr. Gutenberg. Hmm. It was up till that point unprecedented. And now all of a sudden, you know, back in the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, you were considered a rich man if you had 10 or 11 handwritten books in your library. Well, with Gutenberg, everything changes. From there, it begins this climb up into the Industrial Revolution, where we see many of the inventions that we enjoy today in modernity. It stems from the Industrial Revolution, which is unprecedented in all of human history. Finally, until the modern day, where we now, as I'm speaking, men and women fly over the face of the earth. Knowledge increases exponentially. So the book of Daniel, which was sealed up until the modern era, is now unsealed. So the question is, and I'm saying all this to get to my point, how does the angel know what it's going to look like at the time of the end? How do the demons who are about to be cast out by Jesus beg them, beg Jesus, not to put us into the abyss because it's not our time yet. Somehow, time, space can be displaced. And these entities, while they don't know everything, they know that it's going to look like this when they're finally put into the abyss. But it doesn't look like that when they're saying, hey, it's not our time yet. They know it's not their time yet. How do they know that? How is it that the angel tells Daniel, men and women will run to and fro over the face of the earth and knowledge will increase? Seal up the words, Daniel, until the time of the end. He knows what the time of the end will look like. The demons in this man, they know what the time of the end will look like. Hmm. So is it possible? Those are my proof texts. Okay, you, you, I got to lay the groundwork before I give you the punchline. <laughs> sure, sure. Is it possible that these entities who are so concerned with our nuclear capabilities, know that there's going to be a nuclear event which triggers their revealing. Mm. Now that's a lot of conjecture on my part, and you've never heard that before, guaranteed. Right. I mean, I hear some people talk about a, a relationship between nuclear technology and, and nuclear bombs and the other side, but not in that context. Maybe it will just rip a portal right open and they'll come spilling forth. 
Uh, just I wanted to go back to Roswell for a minute because I watched your crop circle documentary from the UFO disclosure series, and you make a strong point that the earliest reference we have to crop circles was from 1678, and they called it the devil's mowing with an image of the devil with the scythe in the field. So this spiritual framing was actually how it was before we were coached and trained into a sci-fi framing. And you make a really interesting point about that famous crop circle of the gray alien head with the disc. He kind of has a smirk on his face. The gray image is made of 59 horizontal lines, and the disc is made of 33 lines. 59 times 33 is 1947. And then you have 151 characters in the code on the disc, and 151 times 33 is 4,983, which if you use miles, then you have the date and the location encoded in this crop circle, literally referencing Roswell in time and in space. And that's super interesting. And you call crop circles the hidden language of the dragon, but I thought it was always just encoding sacred geometry and things like squaring the circle and basically trying to teach the basic concepts of the material world, spiritual science, some might call it. Why is this a negative thing? Because, you know, you're saying sacred geometry. Who coined that phrase? Where does that come from? Where does the term sacred geometry come from? Who coined that? I'm a little unsure, but it's in the vernacular. Yeah. They call it sacred geometry because those studying all these ancient megalithic sites know that these sites, they're built on pi, mathematics is used. They know the 18 and a half year lunar cycle, but don't call it sacred. You're just saying that because you're trying to put a spin on it, your spin on it. I'm not saying you in particular. Right, right. I'm saying the new agers take that spin. So let me put it to you this way. There's a site in America, in New Hampshire. It's called America's Stonehenge. There are standing stones all around the center of that henge. When the Stone family bought the property way back in the 60s and began to clear the woods and do primitive, well, archaeological digs on the site, they found what they now call the sacrificial table. Well, it's a sacrificial altar, in my opinion. They also found standing stones in the woods. And they realized as they began to delve into it that, wow, the summer solstice sunrise comes right over that stone. And they began to find the winter standing stones and the equinoxes and both solstice, summer solstice, winter solstice. And then they realized that the site was built on an 18 and a half year lunar cycle. If the site is 4,000 years old, how do these people who built it know about the 18 and a half year lunar cycle? And this is so-called sacred geometry. But what if it's not sacred? What if it's handed down by the dragon? What if the dragon and his forces are the ones that are embedding all this incredible math into these sites? Because that's their language. And they show it because it totally dazzles us even today. So when you take a line from the center of America Stonehenge out to the summer solstice standing stone, and you continue it on Google Earth, which is what Kelsey Stone did years ago. He was a 23-year-old college student. So this is years ago, about 10 years ago. And he's on Google Earth, and he extends the line, and he just wants to see if the line comes near his house. He's just goofing around. So it does. It comes pretty close to his house, and he thinks to himself, wow, that's pretty cool. And so he 
extends the line because he's on Google Earth. And he extends it a little further, and he's up by Nova Scotia, and then he's out over the Atlantic, and now he's through Ireland, and he finds himself in southern England. And the light bulb goes off, and he says to himself, I wonder how close the line comes to Stonehenge, England. So he zooms in. That line, my friends, bisects the center of the two trilothons, which are at right angles to each other. That line bisects the lentil piece, the cross piece, the cross beam above the two pillars, which is a physical impossibility. Hmm. It's not a coincidence. That <laughs> is the language of the dragon. And why do I say that? Because they discovered a stone, all right? They discovered a stele that was buried under about 18 inches of dirt in a collapsed chamber on America's Stonehenge. I show this in film. It's number four and number five of Amitrail of the Nephilim series. You can go there by going to streaming.lamarzulli.net and just download it for a cup of coffee, five bucks. You can watch those films. Mm. Specifically, number four, The Canaanite Connection, streaming.lamarzulli.net. Here's the deal. That stone, when Kelsey was taking me, I was running B-roll. He was taking me through the museum, and he was pointing out the different artifacts at America Stonehenge that they had found. And he goes, well, here's the display case of the handwritten, of written messages that we found on the site. Okay, that's pretty cool. Well, what does this one say? And he goes, well, that's written in Iberian Punic, and it says, to Baal of the Canaanites in dedication. And I'm speechless. And you hear me go, what did you just say? And he kind of laughs nervously. It's all on film. And he goes, to Baal of the Canaanites in dedication. Well. With all due respect to Dennis, Kelsey's father, and Kelsey's father, they didn't know about the Nephilim. They weren't sure of the Baal connection. What is that doing in New Hampshire? A dedication stone written in Iberian Punic. That stone was in the museum for 11 years before Dr. Professor Barry Fell came into the museum, saw the stone, and said, I think I can translate it. It looks like Iberian Punic. And he translates it to Baal of the Canaanites and dedication. That's my wheelhouse. Huh. That's Nephilim architecture, fallen angel technology. And mathematics is the secret language of the dragon, which is embedded in all of these ancient sites. And there is a connection between America's Stonehenge and the other ancient sites that are found around the world, which is the number five of our Amitrail of the Nephilim series. We call it the Axis Mundi, the center of the world. And you can watch it again by going to streaming at lamarzuli.net. lamarzuli.net's the website. Our streaming site is streaming at lamarzuli.net. When the Stone family realized the connection between the Summer Solstice Standing Stone and America Stonehenge and Stonehenge, England, they were blown away. And they checked that numerous times. So then they started to go to other standing stones. And those other standing stones, went on. when you go on Google Earth, you wind up in Chaco Canyon, New Mexico. You wind up in Teotihuacan, Mexico, Machu Picchu, Peru, the pyramids, the step pyramids on the Canary Islands, the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Serpent Mound in Ohio. I'm not making this stuff up. You can't do that in the ancient world. You can't do that 4,000 years ago. 
you have to be able to triangulate from the air, number one. And number two, you've got to know the curvature of the Earth. And you've got to know advanced geometry and trigonometry to do this. This is the secret language of the dragon. Some people call it sacred geometry. I take umbrage with that. It's not sacred at all. It's incredibly foul and unclean, and it is the language of the dragon. And all these sites that I just mentioned, Chaco Canyon, Teotihuacan, Machu Picchu, Sacsayhuaman, all these different places, the Step Pyramids, the Pyramid of Gaza, this is all Nephilim architecture, fallen angel technology, in my opinion. And before I'm done this little rant, here's something to think about. When all these sites are built, not all, but many, are built on the 18-and-a-half-year metonic cycle, 18-and-a-half-year lunar cycle. So let's say you and I go back in time 4,000 years, and we stand up and we look at the clear night sky, and we see the moon rise, and we go, wow, that's pretty cool. And then we see it set. And then the next night we go out and we look and you go, you know, L.A., something's different. The moon seems to be rising and setting in different places every night. I go, okay, great. So we'll use this. We'll take the slab of stone and make this the center of our observatory. And then we'll go out from our center and we will put a stick where we see a stake in the ground marking the lunar when the moon comes up, when it rises, and when it sets. So now you've got two stakes in the ground. Well, the problem with this is we don't know where we are in that 18-and-a-half-year lunar cycle. Did we start tracking the moon in year 5, in year 10, in year 3? We don't know. We have no idea. And we have no computers. So we've just got stakes in the ground, and we're doing this for 30 or 40 days. Finally, a big rainstorm comes in, and we can't see the moon. So now we got to start all over. So this begs the question, where does the knowledge of the 18-and-a-half-year lunar cycle come into play? Well, the Book of Enoch provides that answer. It tells us that one of the fallen watchers, Sariel, Sariel, showed the procession of the moon to mankind, gave that knowledge to mankind. So you tell me, hmm. the language of the dragon. Dang, well... <laughs> I got to applaud that. That was a really great rant and you make some excellent points. And Thank you, sir. Yeah, of course. And it, it is true when you talk about Baal or Baal, like there's so many references in, in modern culture to that kind of stuff. I mean, Bloomberg spent money on extracting an ancient temple of Mithras and there was the Hillary Clinton emails thing about looking for Gilgamesh's tomb and you got award shows where... People can decode it and it's all quite dark symbolism, even though it's up there to just razzle dazzle people. And it seems great because, hey, Katy Perry's on a flaming lion. But then you get that decoded and it's always the dark side of spirituality. Oh. And then you look at statues that are in front of state buildings and it just looks like something kind of innocuous. But when it's decoded, it's like, oh, no, they're referencing another dark entity. And then you get into NASA and it's like, again, it's all this, the, the old gods, Egyptian gods, uh, Osiris Rex is the name of uh, that asteroid. And it, it's quite strange. I mean, SpaceX is the dragon is the name of uh, the Dragon X or Falcon X and the dragon that again goes back to Egyptian mythology. Mm -hmm. It's quite strange, but clearly people at the top are clued in and they encode this stuff intentionally 
are, are these the descendants of the Nephilim? I mean, what do you think their relationship really is with all this stuff? Well, in my opinion, this is all the fingerprints of the dragon. And what drives me nuts, what drives me nuts, Greg, about all this stuff is that many people never understand what's written in the guidebook of a supernatural. So they equate going to church or the Catholic church with incense and robes and stained glass windows and monks with funny haircuts and all this nonsense as what's going on. And they don't understand what's written in the guidebook. Unless a person understands Genesis 3.15 and then goes and reads the rest of it and understands that we see, I've written two books on this. One is called The Cosmic Chess Match. The other one is called Counter Move, How the Nephilim Returned After the Flood. You can find them by going to lamarzuli.net. Those are books, so you can't download them, but you can buy them. And those will open your eyes, reader, people listening, of what's really written in that book, the guidebook to the supernatural, the cosmic chess match, because there are protocols of this heavenly conflict, war, which has been going on for millennia. And those protocols are there. We're not privy to all of them, but we get glimpses of it. And we also get, unlike any other book on this planet, we get this thread of prophecy from Genesis to Revelation, which the only book on the planet that has that thread of prophecy is the biblical prophetic narrative, i.e. the guidebook of the supernatural. So I'm not talking religion, you know, like you see on TV with these guys yelling for money and, and all the antics and all the silliness that accompanies with it. And there's a lot of good people. I can think of one show, Prophecy Watchers. I'll be on that show coming up in the next couple of weeks. I'll be flying in, and I've been on that show numerous times. They're stand-up guys. There's no nonsense there. There's no, you know, hoopla or hype or anything else. They're just real stand-up guys. And I've been on their show numerous times. And, you know, I have a great allegiance with those people. But what we're talking about is this great conflict between the dragon and his forces and the Most High God. That's what we're talking about. If a person knows that and understands it, then all the dominoes all around the globe make sense. Everything just goes click, 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 click. But you get a guy like Stephen Greer, with all due respect to Stephen, or Graham Hancock, who's a brilliant researcher. And Graham is like, you know, he was talking about these sites before I even knew what they were. I visited many of the same sites that Graham Hancock has, and I have a different take on it, only because my worldview is that of a biblical prophetic worldview. And what these people don't understand is that thread of prophecy goes from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Why does Jesus warn us, going back to the UFO film, films, that men will faint from fear for what is coming upon the earth? Why does Jesus single out in prophecy? It'll be like the days of Noah when I return. Why does Jesus state on the record that even the elect would be deceived if that were possible? Now, you know, you show me any other book on this planet that has that type of prophecy with that type of specificity. Even the elect would be deceived if that were possible. Men think for fear of what is coming upon the earth, right? Because they did not believe the truth. God sends them strong delusion. The dragon comes with all signs and lying wonders, I just shot four things at you. That's not fuzzy quatrains like we read in Nostradamus. Hmm. 
that Jesus warns us will be like the days of Noah, which immediately begs the question, well, what does the days of Noah look like that differentiates that time from any other time in history? Bingo! <laughs> we all know the answer. It's the mingling of the seed. And what's interesting, in the book of Daniel, which I talked about earlier, which is a sealed book, okay? You can't open that book until the time of the end. And I said earlier, the being, entity, the angel, the watcher angel talking to Daniel says, seal up the words in this book, Daniel, until the time of the end. Then he tells us what the time of the end will look like. And we've already elaborated on that. Men and women will run to and fro over the face of the earth. As I speak, men and women are running, flying to and fro over the face of the earth, all over it. Knowledge increases now exponentially, and that's unprecedented, absolutely unprecedented. So we're in this window of time, which is, in my opinion, just mind-boggling. Mm. <laughs> Way to stick the landing, man. Wow. Well, I got to let you go eventually. This has been a fascinating whirlwind of information. I appreciate <laughs> your time and the Thank dedication you. you have to these topics. I've been hearing you on Coast to Coast for years, I think even as far back as my college days talking about mothman as a fallen angel there you go and that always stuck with me but yeah my thoughts have evolved a lot in the last 15 years but you were certainly an influence on me at various times and maybe even more so today than ever but before i let you go let people know about the various links they need the various irons in the fire if they want to follow up i mean 13 books 25 films no small thing yeah, it's L.A. Marzulli on YouTube, L.A. Marzulli on YouTube. Our website is lamarzulli.net, lamarzulli.net. Our streaming site is streaming.lamarzulli.net. And you can go and you can watch all the stuff we've been talking about. Binge watch them. Spend some money. What the heck? <laughs> what are you waiting for? And you will educate yourself. You really will because you just said it, 13 books, 25 films. There is a corpus of work there. There's a body of work there. So thanks for having me on. It's been a hoot. And God bless you, sir. Heck yeah. Nice. Well, take care. We will beware the great deception and just uh, stay on the trail. Thank you. Hallelujah, higher side chatters. The great L.A. Marzulli. There is no doubt that he's dedicated and is a big name in this space who's been doing it since I was barely 20 years old. If I could go back and tell myself I'd eventually be interviewing this guy talking about Mothman as a fallen angel on Coast to Coast, it would have blown my young, naive little mind. So I got an immense amount of respect for him, and I do think he has some major pieces of the puzzle correct. The general fallen angel story of something along those lines happening in the ancient past seems relevant to me. Just by observing the way the elite bloodlines try to preserve their genetics and focus so heavily on things in that space tells us that there's something going on there. And the idea that all this current day UFO posturing and drip, drip, drip through conventional media is a great deception. Yeah, I'm right there with him on that too. And those are really some of his most key positions, so kudos to him. Because those are big points that a lot of other researchers don't give any attention to. That said, I think people who have identified themselves with one specific faith also tend to write off a lot of others as somehow dark or bad or just wrong. 
Obviously, all three major religions do that, whether we're sinners, infidels, or goyim. They all pretty much say, if you ain't one of us, then you're pretty much screwed. <laughs> so I do just get a little bit defensive of the other guests we have that are, say, mystics or shamans of various disciplines, because a lot of them are good people doing good, positive things in the world. Maybe they were once wounded or broken and now have a call to heal. Maybe they got involved with local indigenous traditions in their area and went deep, deep, deep down and came out wanting to share something that was impactful for them. Maybe like Dr. Kuyava, they had a strange kundalini experience and wanted to dive deeper into what that could have meant for spirituality. Because I say, if God made us top to bottom, as we are, then these abilities we have to astral travel or enter altered states through breath and meditation, they're gifts from God as I see it. Though I still think L.A. is right about Dr. Greer in several ways too, so both can be true. Though my own personal religion is that there is something divine about this place and this life, and we are here to engage and explore, dare I even say indulge to a degree. Ultimately, we're here to learn, I would say, but we learn through those mechanisms, through action and adventure and exploration. And when it comes to something like a demon actually responding or fleeing when you call Jesus' name, I would acknowledge that and say it's probably the power of archetypes and tulpas or something to that degree. Again, I'm not an expert. I'm just saying what I think, given the... Long history of talking to a lot of various wise people. It's not outside the realm of possibility that there's just been so much mental energy poured into the concept of Jesus that it makes Jesus real, regardless of the literal historical record. And in demon land, on that side of the veil, thought forms are as real as anything. And I can't think of a much more powerful thought form archetype than Jesus, based on the mental attention and energy that the concept has gotten. So I can appreciate LA and the large number of areas we overlap and still say that we have some differences. But if you saw that recent review that I tweeted out, you'd think I was the Dark Prince himself. But as fun and interesting as the free show was, if you're not a Plus member, you also missed a lot of good stuff. We talked about Shamanic initiation and the human sacrifice requirement with the folks that L.A. has talked to, the Kandahar giant in Afghanistan and how L.A. verified the story as true, the work of David Flynn, R.I.P., Bigfoot, Beast of the Earth, waiting to make their move, the demonic ecology, technology demons and vessels for contact, cattle mutilations, bovine blood and the hybrid agenda, R.H. Negative Blood and the Shaman Statement. We also talked about the Catalina Giant cover-up. L.A. caught them fudging a photograph of a giant. And we talked about that question of if God brought the flood to wipe out the Nephilim, how are they still around? All good stuff. Very interesting. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com if you want the full hour show of this episode and every episode. And thank you to those who do. But I would recommend L.A.'s documentaries. They are fun to watch. Some previous THC guests make appearances in his interviews, too, which was also a nice surprise. 
And big thanks to Flophouse Jr. for that intro song. I've played it a few times. I like the vibe it sets up. I wish I had a choir version of the show intro for times like these, but it just hasn't come across my inbox yet. But episodes are coming out a bit faster, and we got two more to go. Plenty of time left. Not really that bad. We are catching up. And there's a lot to like about the next two. Very different from this one and from each other, and that's what we're going for. So before I get out of here, you know we're looking at the meetup calendar. I just saw a few more posts across social media about wanting to make a meetup. I wish people would stop doing that. You just got to go and put it on the calendar. Don't try to feel out the audience through a tweet because it's just such an inefficient way to go. And the chances that the local THC fans will see it are very low. So just go ahead and be bold. Take five minutes. Fill out the simple form of where you want to meet and when and what you might want to do or discuss. And then you can know that whether five people show up or 15 people, they're there specifically to do those things. Usually have a drink, talk about high strangeness and conspiracy, and form some local bonds on that common ground. On deck, we still only have two for the month of July. We have the Auckland, New Zealand meetup on July 1st and a Brooklyn, New York meetup on July 15th. It's a big wide world out there. I hope more people take advantage of this and I hope it doesn't fizzle out. But if it does, it does. Either way, big thanks to L.A. Marzuli for his dedication and for taking the time. I would say he is one of those people who was right there and in influencing me throughout the years when I was into this material and in my infancy of learning about these things. He was a bucket list guest, let's say. So like any good Pokemon trainer, I got to catch them all and I can scratch L.A. Marzuli off that list now. So now I'm getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, Fallen Angels, Faithful, Nephilim, Foot Soldiers, and Great UFO Deception Disseminators. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over everything. Nine to five is trying to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings From some spy agency Wish we were younger and free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy such a difference between us and the dead
It's done. 